Good morning. My son Elijah asked me a question this week that maybe you have been asking, uh, among others, I'm sure. Um, we were getting ready to, I was getting ready to go to the office, he's getting ready to go to school, and he's, he just said, Dad, is, is what we're seeing unfold in Israel, is this war in Israel, is that, is that the war from Ezekiel of Gog and Magog? And my, my first thought to that was, Wow, I mean, how many, how many 20-year-olds are asking questions about Ezekiel and Magog? So that puts some joy in my soul to know that, and I get it, I'm, I know he's, he's my kid, but I'm just telling you, we don't sit around at our house in the evenings like having Bible prophecy quizzes and, <laughs> you know, we, we don't debate prophecy in the evening for fun. Um, so it filled my soul with joy just to see a young man who, who is looking at world events through a biblical worldview, through the lens of biblical prophecy. He, he wants to know what does God's word have to say about what we are seeing play out in, in the world. And I just, it was a reminder to me, so it's a reminder hopefully to you this morning. This is why we're studying the minor prophets together. We spent um, a good portion of this year looking at the minor prophets and one of the main, I want you to have some biblical literacy obviously because we don't typically get into the minor prophets in, in sermons. Um, but having, having a biblical worldview, if that's, if that's what we should have, we, it, that demands that we know what the word of God says. A biblical worldview demands that we know how do we apply the word of God to our everyday lives? How do we, how do we view the world around us through the lens of God's word? And so hopefully throughout this year you have been uh, learning that and, and being able to apply the word of God, all of it, uh, to your everyday lives and the way that we see the world unfolding around us. And one of the things that I hope that you will always remember when we're, when we're done and we move on from the minor prophets, one of the things that I hope that you will, re will remember when you look back on this study, whenever you study major prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel, whenever you study uh, the book of Revelation, either on your own or in, in a small group, I, I hope every time you get into the Word of God and you begin to study prophecy, you will remember this one major theme from biblical prophecy, it is this, that God keeps his promises. I hope you'll never forget that, that God keeps his promises. When you think about people in our lives that don't, don't do that, that list seems like it grows, right? That people, I, I have a certain level, uh, or I guess a standard, I should say, of trust. And you probably do too. There's probably a standard that you have for people that you trust, People who lie, I do not trust. People who manipulate words and manipulate facts and truth, I, I, do, I do not trust. People who break their promises, I do not trust. And you're probably the same. Now, thankfully, there are people in my life that I absolutely trust, and I hope you do too. There are sources of information that I trust. Jesus and the Word of God are on that list for me. They are at the top of that list for me because God does not lie and God always keeps his promises. 
one of the places in Scripture that we see God as a promise keeper is in the book of Obadiah. And I know you're probably like, not Obadiah again. I am so tired of studying the book of Obadiah. How many more sermons could we possibly hear on Obadiah? Now, if you are new to following Jesus, that was a sarcastic joke. (laughs) The pages of Obadiah are, I mean, let's be honest, they're probably not worn out in your Bible. So let's learn something new together this morning. How's that sound? All right, Lord, thanks so much that we can be together, and I thank you for your word that you have preserved for us that we can study together this morning. Reveal your truth to us. Reveal yourself to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So Obadiah, go ahead and open it up. If you don't know where it is, it's totally fine to use your table of contents. No one is going to judge you. If you are using one of the Bibles that is in front of you in the pew or in the chairs, it is page 656 in those Bibles. If that is helpful to you, please join me in Obadiah. Verse 1, this is the vision that the sovereign Lord revealed to Obadiah concerning the land of Edom. What do we know about Obadiah? Well, we know his name is Obadiah. That's about it. That's about all we know about Obadiah. Uh, The other thing we know about Obadiah is that the Lord is the one who gave him a vision about Edom. We know that. This is the shortest book in the Old Testament, but it contains a very powerful theme that God keeps his promises. So if this vision is about Edom, we need to know where's Edom. We need to know who are the Edomites. So the Edomites were descendants of Esau. And if you are new to faith in Jesus, if you're new to Bible study, who is Esau? So you probably do have a reference point. Most people have a reference point of Abraham. Um, so if we go back to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had twin boys, and their names were Jacob and Esau. And this family, Jacob's family, was kind of messed up. They they had some serious family issues and. That really spilled out into the twin boys, into, into uh, Jacob and Esau, and their, their family squabble between the two of them got really bad to the point where Esau wanted to kill Jacob, and they had to run away, and it was, it was really bad. And you can read about their family issues in, in the book of Genesis, but here's, here's what I want you to understand. Their, their family issues turned into a generational family feud. It didn't just end with those boys. It continued out into the generations beyond them. So the descendants of Jacob eventually settled in Egypt. You, you may have heard the name Joseph, right? And so that was one of his boys, and that's a really, really cool story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. You can read that in, in the book of Genesis also, but uh, they, they settle uh, in, in Egypt and eventually became enslaved there. But God delivers them. 
And you probably have a reference point of the name Moses. Most people have that reference point. Historically, they were delivered by God through Moses. Okay, so that's happening with the descendants of Jacob. And then you have the descendants of Esau. They, they settled in what is modern-day Jordan in, uh, in the mountains. And I have, I think, some pictures uh, for you of the terrain there. The terrain in, in Jordan, in Edom, is very rocky. It is rough terrain. They have, in this particular area, there's high ridges and deep gorges and, and canyons. And because of the geography, it was very easy to defend from enemies. And that's where the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, lived. And they were very wealthy. They, they had a trade route that went through there. And they also had a copper mine. They were self-reliant. They were very prideful because they were wealthy. They felt uh, like no one could defeat them because of where they lived. So they have this going on, this attitude about themselves, and they also carry with them throughout history, they carry with them this attitude problem towards the descendants of Jacob. Hundreds of years after Jacob and Esau had their family squabble, the descendants of of Jacob and Esau, they, they would meet again in the wilderness. So you have Moses, he delivers the Israelites the Hebrew people, out of slavery in Egypt, and they're going through the wilderness. Well, at one point, they came across the land of the Edomites, and they asked for permission to cross their land. And, and, and Moses was very clear. We're, we're not going to touch anything. We promise. We won't touch anything. We'll, we'll stay on the road. We, we won't get off the road, left or right. We'll stay on the road, and we just need to get through. That's all we're asking. And Edomites said, nope, absolutely not. No, please, please, honestly, we, we won't touch anything well, we, won't, uh, we won't move a stone. Nope. If you try it, we will attack you. And they wouldn't let them pass through their land. So that continued on this attitude problem that the Edomites had towards the descendants of Jacob. We fast forward then to the time of King David. King David uh, would eventually unite all of the tribes under one kingdom. And that would include the Edomites, and they did not like it. And they had an attitude problem, and they were constantly giving David problems. And you go down through that history from then on, you see uh, other nations would attack Jerusalem. And when that would happen, you know what the Edomites did? Nothing but cheer. They would cheer on their attackers. Well, that would continue on uh, until the worst example of this and what would turn out to be the last straw for God was in 586 B.C. when the Babylonian invasion took place and Jerusalem was burned to the ground. Jews were slaughtered. Many were taken into captivity and everything was plundered. And you know what Edom did? Edom rejoiced. Edom helped catch some of the Jews who were trying to escape. We see the why this punishment is coming in verses 10 through 14. Here's, here are the charges against Edom from God. You ready? Verse 10. Because of the violence you did to your close relatives in Israel, you will, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When, when they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. 
Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and, and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. You should not have captured survivors and handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. These are the charges against Edom. This is why God decided to punish them. That was the final straw. They had been, they had, uh, been pretty uh, terrible towards uh, the Israelites for quite some time, but this was the final straw. And so God gave this uh, prophecy to Obadiah. Others, too, uh, we see it show up in, um, in Ezekiel, and uh, we see it show up in, in Jeremiah. Why uh, God decided to punish them is, is pretty clear. What's the punishment? Well, the punishment uh, here is in verse 1. We have heard, this is the second part of verse 1, we have heard a message from the Lord that an ambassador was sent to the nations to say, get ready everyone, let's assemble our armies and attack Edom. The Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations. You will be greatly despised. You have been deceived by your own pride you, because you live in a rock fortress and make your home in the high mountains. Who can ever reach us way up here, you ask boastfully. But even if you soar as high as the eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. He goes on to say, you know, if thieves came at night and robbed you, what a disaster awaits you. You're not going to see this even coming. You know, the, those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor, but your enemies are going to wipe you out completely. They're going to take everything. Every nook and cranny from Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. All your allies will turn against you. They will help to chase you from your land, and they will promise you peace while plotting to deceive and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you. You won't even know that it's happening. At that time, not a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. The mightiest warriors of Taman will be terrified, and everyone on the mountains of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter. They thought they had these friends. They thought they had these allies, and they're going to turn out to betray them. They, they thought they were safe in the mountain cliffs. But God says, no, there's no way. There, there's nowhere you can hide they're going to be destroyed, betrayed, plundered, driven off their homeland, and that's exactly what happened. Around 300 B.C., an Arabian tribe, the Nabetans, pushed them out of their homeland, plundered them, killed many of them, and, and then established their own land there of what we now know as Petra. Now, not the lame 80s band, not that Petra. Uh, this is the city that carved that was carved into rock. Some of you recognize this from 
Indiana Jones, the movie, if you ever saw that. Um, that's Petra. Later on in history, Rome would take control over this area, and eventually Petra was abandoned, um, forgotten about, and it wasn't uh, even known to be there until the recent age of archaeology rediscovered it. And so God's punishment, he promised this punishment, and he kept that promise. But Obadiah's vision is not just about God's promise of punishment to the Edomites. It's also about God's promises to Israel. And we see those in verses like verse 17. Verse 17. So we have all of this going on uh, with, with Edom. But then listen to some. I'll start actually in verse 15. Verse 15. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations as you have done to Israel. So it will be done to you, verse 17, Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place, and the people of Israel will come back to reclaim their inheritance. The people of Israel will be a raging fire and Edom, a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom. I, the Lord, have spoken." So these are, these are references to what, what we now call uh, end times. So, you know, we have a phrase that we use uh, about the times that I believe that we are, are living in, uh, the end times, when, when Jesus Christ will return, where he will establish his kingdom on earth and God will fulfill all of his remaining promises to Israel. Well, what are those promises. Well, there are a number, but here's the big one that, uh, that is in dispute today in Israel. Genesis chapter 13. We go all the way back to Abraham. And God made a promise to Abraham. Genesis 13 verse 14. This is what the Lord said to, to Abram. Look as far as you can see in every direction north and south, east and west. I am giving you all this land as far as you can see to you and to your descendants as a, listen, a permanent possession. This is the promise that God made to Abraham that this land, this land of Israel would be a permanent possession to him and his descendants. This promise then was reaffirmed with his son Isaac in chapter 26. It was again reaffirmed to his son Jacob in chapter 28. And we see it in Obadiah. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it in Daniel and in the book of Revelation that God absolutely intends to keep that promise, to give them all of the land not a portion of it that is split up between a bunch of uh, Arabian or Islamic country. It's all of it. God absolutely intends to keep that promise. So what's happening in Israel right now is maybe you've had questions, right, this week. Questions like how, how, is, how does all of this that we're watching on TV, how does it fit into biblical prophecy? Is this war? Maybe you were wondering the question my son was wondering. Is this the war of Ezekiel 38? So let's read it. 
Let's read it. Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 8 to 12. Let's just start with that. Ezekiel 38, verse 8. I jumped to Jeremiah. Hold on, give me a second here. All right. Ezekiel 38, verse 8. A long time from now, you will be called into action. In the distant future, you will swoop down on the land of Israel which will be enjoying peace after recovering from war and after its people have returned from many lands to the mountains of Israel. You and all your allies, a vast and awesome army, will roll down on them like a storm and cover the land like a cloud. This is what the sovereign Lord says. At that time, evil thoughts will come to your mind and you will devise a wicked scheme. You will say, Israel is unprotected, is an unprotected land filled with unwalled villages. I will march against her and destroy these people who live in such confidence. I will go to those formerly desolate cities that are now filled with people who have returned from exile in many nations. I will capture vast amounts of plunder for the people are rich with livestock and other possessions now. They think the whole world revolves around them. Hmm. I mean, sounds an awful like, lot like what happened, doesn't it? We go back to the beginning, though, of chapter 38, and we find out that players involved in this particular future event are led by Russia. Of course, uh, we see the the terrorist organizations involved, Hamas and Hezbollah, and and funded by Iran, and and those players are included here. But here in in chapter 38, we, we see led by by Russia, and you think, well, I'm looking here, I see Gog and Magog, I see these, I don't, Libya, I don't, I don't, see, I don't see the name Russia mentioned. You're right, Russia did not exist in the days of Ezekiel, and so we see this title, Gog. Gog is a title, it's a, he's the leader of Magog. Magog was a grandson of Noah, and their descendants Uh, They established land, they established their lives around the Caspian Sea, around the Black Sea, and and so in modern times, these are all what we call the Stan countries, your Afghanistan, your Kyrgyzstan's, all of your Stan countries uh, are the descendants of Magog. And you also see that Gog is the prince of Rosh, and uh, many Bible scholars, most uh, would follow that that, uh, that word down throughout history and identify that as modern-day Russia. There's debate over that, and that's okay. But uh, there's definitely, I think, some really strong evidence that that's what's being identified there. So we also see that the Ezekiel War has a whole host of countries actively, not passively, not uh, you know, behind the scenes like Iran is right now, but actively involved in this future war, Iran, Turkey, Egypt, everyone surrounding Israel will attack them. That's not what we're seeing right now. 
where it's going, but that's not what we're seeing at this point. We also know that this future war of Ezekiel is, according to Daniel, according to what we see in, in the book of Revelation, it finds itself in time period of when the Antichrist will rise to power, sometime during the seven-year tribulation period, and that has not happened. We have not yet seen the Antichrist rise to power. We have not seen the Antichrist make a, a peace promise with Israel for seven years and break that. So those things are, are still yet to happen. So we know that, the, that what is happening with Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran, it's, it's absolutely terrible, but it's not the Ezekiel war. However, interesting side note, Matthew chapter 24 Listen to what Jesus says. Now, this fits into our study of Obadiah. I'm going to bring it full circle for you here. Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. This is Jesus talking about what we describe as, as end times. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about. The sacrilegious objects that cause desecration standing in the holy place. So what he's referencing is the day of the Antichrist breaks his, his promise for a seven-year peace plan. About halfway through that time period, he will break that promise. He will desecrate the temple. And he will begin uh, a, a desire to just wipe out every Jew on the planet. And that's what he's talking about. And he says, when that happens, Jesus says, when that happens, then those in Judea must flee to the hills, to the mountains. Hold on to that and look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. Revelation 12, 14 says this. Uh, again, same, same scenario with the Antichrist and his plan to annihilate every Jew on the planet but she was given two wings like those of a great eagle so she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, referencing Israel, that God is going to protect the remnant of Jews in the wilderness, in the mountains. So when the Antichrist breaks his promise with Israel, God has made a promise that he will protect a remnant of them in the mountains. No, it's not just any random mountains. It can't be. There's only, there's only so many places in reference to Israel that that could be. And based on geography, based on the fact, not only of, of uh, geography itself and, and uh, how the land of Edom would be a, a place of refuge to be able to hide and, and be able to defend yourself, not only that, but we know from Daniel chapter 11 that Edom is one of a very few places on the planet that the Antichrist will not have control over. Jordan is one of those places. Edom is listed there. And so you take those two things together, and it makes logical sense that Petra is the place where they will go to hide and be protected by God. So it's interesting to see God... Uh, even now, preparing for his people to keep his promises. So, no, it's not the Ezekiel war. It's not the battle of Revelation 20 at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. But it's also not just a random war. 
And I think this is really important for us to understand that God is at work. It's terrible, it's awful, it's heartbreaking, it's disgusting what has happened to innocent people. But I've been asking myself uh, questions like, is it possible that God is, is using what is happening, that God is using this war in Israel to move us towards the day when the Antichrist will rise to global power, when the Antichrist will make his seven-year peace promise with Israel? Is it possible that, that God is at work in this using these things to move his story forward. I I look at the Abraham Accords from 2020. That seemed absolutely impossible. And if you've been watching the news before this broke out, you, you may be aware that those were getting ready to be expanded into even more impossible things. They, they were getting ready to announce uh, an even deeper level of peace commitment towards one another in the Middle East. And you, you see that, like how, how that never seemed possible. And now this terrible thing, babies and women and grandmothers. And I wonder, what, what is the world going to do in response? Where, where will it all lead? And, and we don't know. We don't know how it's going to spill out or how, how much it's going to escalate. But it definitely feels like we have a front row seat to God setting the stage, you ready? To keep his promises to Israel. He's also made promises to the church that he intends to keep. Let me take you to just a couple of those promises that that have been made to the church. Look at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, Jesus said this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my Father's home. Where's that? Heaven, right? If this were not so, would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And when everything is ready, Jesus says, I will come and get you so that you will always be where I am. That is a promise that Jesus has made to the church, to the believer that he's coming back for us. This promise was expanded upon by Jesus in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. He gave some more information to the apostle Paul about what that will look like in the future. 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verse 13. Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Verse 15 is key. We tell you this directly from the Lord. This came from Jesus. This is not from Paul just making things up as he goes or making assumptions or or trying to sell books at a prophecy conference, right? This is from Jesus. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Listen carefully to the next verse. So, encourage each other with these words. Why would this be an encouragement to us? It's an encouragement because we can be confident that Jesus will keep his promises. Jesus has made promises, not just to the the church, but Jesus has made promises to you, believer. And I'm just going to give you a, a, a sample of some of those promises from the Word of God. There's tons of them. And I want your heart, I want your heart to be filled with, uh, with assurance this morning from some of these promises. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything, everything that we need for life and for godliness through the knowledge of him who has called, I'm trying to read those, so don't skip ahead too far on me here. Let me read this, okay. Though, though he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through, see it? His great and precious promises so that through them, you and I, we may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God's made promises to us. Jesus has made promises that although the world is crazy and evil and wicked, God has promised to provide for us everything we need spiritually to live in it and have victory. That's an incredible promise that he supplies that power. Look at this next one. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is, what's the word? He's faithful. What's he promised us? Well, the hope that, that he's promised us is that this is not the end for us, that this life is only temporary, and that eternity with him is what we have to look forward to. That's our hope. He's promised us this. Well, this next one. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Isn't that a powerful promise? Are you thankful for that promise? Look at the next one. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me. He is, he's promised to be our helper in times of trouble. He's promised to be there for us when we need him on days of sorrow and days of fear, on, on days when people are breaking promises to us. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. This is his promise to us. One more. Romans, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced neither death, nor life, not angels, not demons, not the present, not the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You thankful for that promise? God keeps his promises. Tomorrow, you and I, we're going to get up. God willing, we'll get out of bed. And we're going to start a new week. When we start this new week, there's going to be people in our lives that are going to disappoint us. There's going to be people who will lie to us, right to our face. There will be people in our lives that will break their promises. We're going to walk into this new week, and there's things that are uncertain. And if we can just be honest with one another, there's going to be things that are going to be hard. But you and I can walk through every day, not just this week, but every day, with absolute confidence, assurance, and peace in our souls because God always keeps his promises. God's going to keep his promises to Israel. God is going to keep his promises to the church. God will keep his promises to the believer in Jesus Christ. And the question I want you to consider right now is, are you on the list of recipients? We're not Jews living in Israel, so we're not recipients of those promises. It's not for us. But you absolutely can be a recipient of God's promises to the church, God's promises to the believer through faith in Jesus Christ as your forgiver of sin, as your savior from hell. See, Jesus already kept his promise of love when he died on the cross as a sacrificial payment for our sin, when he rose from the dead three days later. This is how we know we can trust him to keep his promise to come back for us. We can trust him to keep his promise of eternal life when we put our faith and trust in him. If you've not yet taken that step of faith in Jesus, please make today the day if you're unsure of, of how to take that step of repentance and faith in Jesus, come talk to me. There's a, there's a button on our website, front page of our website, gracefellowship.online, front page says, I'm ready. If you want to start there, click that, read through that. If we can help in any way, please come and talk to us. One of our staff members, one of our elders, a trusted friend in, in, in the room that you know loves Jesus, go talk to them. And if you have put your faith in Jesus to keep his promise of eternal life, then I hope that you will leave here today absolutely confident in all the promises of God. Every time you feel fearful, every time that you are crushed by sorrow, every time that you are disappointed or frustrated, come back to the promise of the gospel. Come back to all the promises that God has made and remind yourself that God will never, ever break one of his promises, not one. If you believe that our God is a promise keeper, you say amen? Amen. amen.